The following episode is a best of Bottle Talk Encore. We want to be sure you don't miss this episode. Boy, is it a good one. Also, yeah, Paul and I are on vacation this week, but we're sticking with our story that we're airing this just for you. And by the way, ignore the promotion about the wine cruise with Paul. That ship has sailed. Literally. Actually, it's already back. But never worry, there will be more. Welcome to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. I'm Rick Cushman. And I'm Paul Wagner. Paul, today we're going to start by quoting someone accomplished and respected in the wine industry. So neither one of us. Oh, God, no. Jeez. <laughs> no, it's a master of wine who's something of a free thinker about tastes. And But this was a comment on how writers in the industry communicate about wine. Not very well. Exactly. I know that answer. Exactly. <laughs> also today, we've got some historic history about corks. Some listeners who've been paying attention, which is always a risk with us. <laughs> no kidding. Ask, uh, they ask about wine glasses, research on screw tops, and about cork bits floating in wine. And as usual, we will make fun of wine snobs. By the way, a couple reminders. We are still miraculously on the Capital Public Radio podcast lineup. That's Sack Martin's NPR station. We're actually in their special category, Capital Public Radio Recommends. Recommended. It's astonishing. It uh, is. Capital Public Radio, thank you. And uh, NPR, good luck. Yes. Uh, we hope this doesn't damage you forever. Yeah, charity is a wonderful thing. We are also on Napa Broadcasting, and that's a network that comes out of Napa Valley College. You'd think they should know better, Paul. Education, uh, institution of higher learning, yeah. you would say. You would say. You would say. And one more reminder, Paul's leading a wine cruise in July, and this is something you can go on. It's Wines Out of the West, and it's out of San Francisco. From uh, leaves uh, July 31st is what it is. Uh, it goes to August 10th. It's from winecruisegroup.com through Expedia. The ship is the Crystal Symphony, by the way, which is Condé Nast Traveler's top, one of their top cruise ships in the world. And look at that. They are risking their rep by letting Paul come aboard. That's right. They, I, I imagine they've taken out extra insurance on that ship. Yeah, I can't. I wouldn't blame them. <laughs> There's lots of information about that and a link on our website at rickandpaulwine.com. All right. So, Paul, let's start with this line by Tim Hanai. He's uh, a master of wine. Yep. Uh, know him well. Yeah. And it was this was part of a pretty good discussion about... How wine writing is, in the words of wine writer Jamie Good, quote unquote, drowning. As and, it was Jamie saying this. Yeah, and by the way, I've had this conversation with Jamie too, so this is this is fun to talk about. Yeah, and and what he was talking about, and this is all really valid stuff. He was talking about how the changes in media and the struggles for the mainstream newspapers and magazines are one of the reason, one of the many reasons, wine writing has lost impact. He said there's so many new new models out there, but they just don't have the same kind of effect. Well, sort of, but at the same time, I think it's a democratization of wine writing, and Jamie doesn't like that. Yeah. Jamie thinks that there should be recognized authorities. It's an interesting dilemma, and it's part of the bigger question of where do we get our news. But we're not going to talk about that. Are well, we, that Rick? is that is actually not a bad discussion. Not so much on the news side, on the on the uh, wine side. But this is I want to go to what uh, Tim said because yeah. then he said in the comment section. I'm going to read it now. The slow spiral of death in wine writing started in the 1970s when print was still the media for most. L, Vogue, Home and Garden, and every major print media company started eliminating the quote-unquote expert wine opinions because they didn't have any relevance or hold the interest of their readers. This is not Tim saying. What he was saying was what they said, did, it wasn't the, the magazine's fault. It was the writer's fault that they were not connecting to the readers. Right. Tim continues. 
arguments of scoring systems and alcohol levels, inane wine and food recommendations, Rick comment here, here, um, and the expressed <laughs> opinions of people who actively disenfranchise, intimidate, and embarrass everyday wine lovers. Oh, goody. Let's keep doing that with new media and technology. Well, that's been the point of our show for the last four years, hasn't it? It has indeed. Um, Except th- for we don't say, oh, goody, which we should because I kind of like that. <laughs> <laughs> but we've taken a very strong position against intimidating people and embarrassing everyday wine lovers. We think everyday wine lovers are pretty good people, and if they just drank more wine, everybody would be happy. Yeah, and they don't have to do what the experts tell them to do, and that's exactly what Tim is talking about. And that this is thing where, you know, we've had this discussion before about so many different stories that say the 10 wrong things you're doing in the tasting room or why you're making a mistake in the, with your wine Five bearings. social faux pas you should never make with wine. Well, one of them is to mention us. <laughs> that, that's always that, that, that's right, that, but that's a valid criticism. That's a valid criticism. You don't want to drop our name no, anywhere. No, that one you want just to, doesn't work. Maybe in the garbage can. <laughs> that'll that'll get you right. in all all kinds of uh, disregard. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but and you know, I mean, I actually got to say, I'm, I'm once again doing my hear here on the inane food and wine pairings because it's always one wine. Right. And it's not like even a class of wine. It's one single wine, and it's a single wine you can never find. Well, and it's usually with a dish that is a specialty of a restaurant right. that flies the chef to Morocco to get the certain spice out of the Atlas Mountains. And if you ever do that, you might consider pouring that wine. But you know what? Only if it's on that restaurant's wine list. That's right. <laughs> Mo- most of us don't live that way, and right. it would be much more helpful to get generic or say more generic or more general. Right. But Rick, you and I have talked about this before. The problem is you don't get to huge credibility as an expert. Right. It's all you do is talk about the easy stuff. You've got to talk about all the really complicated, intricate arguments about how many angels can be on the head of a pin. Seven. Well, I heard it was nine. <laughs> Just I'm going with seven. <laughs> <laughs> and if you can't argue that point, then you can't possibly call yourself an expert. Right. And then all of a sudden you're talking about stuff and all the readers are sitting there saying... I don't care about how many angels are on the head of a pin. I just want to know I'm having barbecue, red or white. Yeah. And, you know, what you mean by credibility, of course, is not among regular people, but among the other, quote-unquote, experts. Right, right. Well, you get credibility in the world of wine with regular people by saying something that nobody understands. Yes. That's how you get credibility. (laughs) Ooh, he must be really smart. I didn't understand what he said. So, and, you know, (laughs) uh, to Tim's point, it's not just— wine writers. It's really the whole industry talks this way. Yes. And um, and so let's talk a little bit of just about, I mean, because they're not dumb people. They're not mean-spirited people. Rick, this so, is just like, just like the high-tech industry. Have you ever read a manual on how to use your computer? I, I mean... Yeah, it's on my computer, so I can't get to so it. So you can't get there, right? Yeah. But, I mean, all those technical manuals, you read them and you think, who the heck could have possibly written this? It makes no sense to me. Right. And And... Of course, Apple broke through by creating computers that don't need manuals. Right. But the wine industry, they do the same thing. The guys who make the computers write the manuals. The guys who make the wine write the manuals on how to enjoy the wine. And you know what? They don't speak English. And they don't. And they've forgotten what it's like not to be in the industry. Right. And I mean, it's it's always one of my criticisms about, you know, spending too much time chasing letters and things like that, which is that it doesn't. Which letters do you chase, right? Mostly the A and the B. Yeah, because you're, I'm, you're I'm pretty right comfortable in the right CDF. The yeah. CDF is right in yes, your sweet it, spot. Right, yeah. <laughs> Mostly F. I'm way in the F category. <laughs> I aspire to D. <laughs> yes. Yes, indeed. Uh, but, you know, and I think, 
I think one of I mean, and so it's this is the jargon issue. If you ever go to a planning commission meeting, dear yeah. God, you know, you, it's hey, the same, same problem. Thing. Yeah, yeah. And of course, the winemakers use the language, so then anybody who wants to pretend that they know about right. wine has to use the same language. Right. And the rest of the audience, the rest of the world, looks at them and says, "Huh." Gosh, I could have sworn those guys spoke English just a few minutes ago. You know, and and part of it too, and this is one of the really sort of insidious parts, is that young writers or young young doesn't mean young, but newer writers or newer people to the wine business aspire to talk like that. They can hardly wait to learn a new word so they can use it, right? So they can show how smart they are. And and part of it is that you just you you want to feel like you know, I mean, I mean, innocently enough, you want to feel like you're part of the inner circle or, or part of the in crowd, right. not, not you, in a mean-spirated way. Well, at least just, you do, Rick. Well, I, I've never been in the in crowd. No, I'm, I'm not, I can't even get close to the out crowd. The out crowd. I am the way out crowd. That's, that's my group. <laughs> there's infield, there's outfield, yeah, and I'm then the there's beyond the, the fence. I'm, I'm outside the bullpen. I'm knocking on the door. Um, so, I mean, that's part of it. I think another part of it is, is that, you know, the industry has been successful, more or less, yes. doing what they do. Right. And so right. They, they don't see the impetus to change. They don't right. they don't see that there's a reason that the, they don't see the marginal gain, quote unquote. Right. That they could get something better. Right. The ship isn't sinking. So why do we have to worry about the fact that there's three feet of water in the bilge? And the answer is, well, you could actually be floating much higher in the water and going much faster if you right. did things differently. Right. And and what is going to happen is as this uh, uh, democratization occurs, which is a word that we really shouldn't use because it has too many syllables and I can't say it too often. Okay, so pick a better one. Uh, uh, I don't know. <laughs> this, as this evenness, uh, okay, as more yeah. people have influence. More people have influence. Yeah. Um, Good. You know, there's going to be some voices that, um, that's, that speak regular language. Right. And and they'll start to resonate and 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 they will and they won't use words like democratization. Yeah. And you know we see this I, I hate to you know <laughs> to uh make this large grouping of the largest generation in the history of the planet, but we you know it's one of the one of the things that we see with millennials, particularly younger ones, and that's a, there's a huge difference, is that those folks are just really interested in basics. They don't need this language. Well, and they're interested in experiences rather than acquisitions. Right. So that means right. they're more interested in my time, right. in, in my sense, in, in drinking wine rather than owning wine. Yeah. And a lot of this gets back to, again, the common American perception of the person who really knows about wine is the landed gentry and titled nobility of the British upper class. They knew wine. So uh, the poor people drank would, beer. It certainly wouldn't be us. No, it wouldn't be us. <laughs> yes. Not noble and not landed and not gentry. Yes. Or really even polite. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the last part is um, is 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 fair enough for the industry. But for any industry, change is hard. Thinking differently is hard. Yeah. Well, just for you, thinking is hard. What? Wait a minute. I've lost, I've, I lost you on that point. <laughs> it's beat up on Rick Day. Let's have it. Everybody that's grab a bat. All right. Yes. All right. So, I mean, that's But you're a right. Bit. Change is hard, and the wine industry is probably the least. It's ironic. How many times have you been told a winery is innovative? Yeah. Probably the least innovative industry on the planet. Yeah, right. They're innovative, and then they start talking about whole cluster fermentation. Uh, yes, they, and um, gravity fed wineries. Yes. And wow, that's exciting I stuff. Know. Okay. Um, all right. Well, so uh, for. Uh, other people who apparently thinking is not easy either. Uh, they've come to us with some questions. <laughs> oh, man, I hope they don't make us think because now we're in trouble. Well, we're going to demonstrate why that's a mistake. Um, so <laughs> we're going to take a few questions. And by the way, thank you for listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. 
And if you'd like to ask us a question, the place is rickandpaulwine.com. Uh, that's our website if you're listening there now. Um, you can also listen to us on iTunes and go ahead and subscribe. And you can even subscribe and not listen. It still sounds good for us. <laughs> All right. And it's maybe better way, for you. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, Paul, you know, I just want to say this one more time because it's been a while since we've reminded people. Um, and I still get these questions all the time. And I oh, yeah. know that you do because you live in Napa. And, and thankfully, I still see a lot of articles about this that's yes. important, which is if I know there have been fires, mudslides, et cetera, in the wine country, we're open for business. We're wide open for business. All the restaurants are open, all but one percent of the wineries are open. They would love to see you come and visit. Yeah, you, you help them out. I know some people are a little worried that they might be creating a burden, quote unquote. Not if at they, all. Uh, they have. Uh, Not at all. Yes, I would create a burden just because it's me. Yes, but most people would be yes. welcome. As one of my friends who works in a taste room said, "Don't let Rick in." No, I said. <laughs> I said, "What do you do? So, what kind of reception do the 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 visitors who visit your taste room today get?" And she says, "Every one of them gets a hug. Yeah. We're really happy to see." Yeah. Them. So, so if you're thinking about going, or even if you aren't thinking about going but want something to do, yep. uh, it's a good time of year to go. By the way, yep. it's a it's a it's nice yep. and quiet, and and it's a long way for Rick to drive. So the chances are you won't run into him there. Well. Except for, unless I'm at work. <laughs> okay, so here's some questions from listeners who, uh, unfortunately for us, maybe have been paying attention. Uh, they've asked things that about things that we've said in previous shows. Uh oh. The first comes from Jill in Fresno, who is she's part of our Fresno enclave, and she said, "You guys made fun of a website that criticized people for using the wrong wine glasses, but the shape of glasses do affect the smell and taste, right? So how much attention should we pay?" Oh, I hate it when people call us up and tell us things like this. I know. Yeah. She's right. They do so, so my wife has a special criteria for wine glasses. She says that it feels nicer if the rim of the glass is thinner, and she likes those. And I always say yes, but every time we have Rick over, he breaks those No, you glasses. need the thick ones when I'm there. <laughs> Go with the coffee mugs. So, you know, I, I, yeah, it, it, glasses do make a difference. Bigger bowl-shaped glasses do a better job of swirling the wine around and letting more of the aroma come out. So for red wines, that's probably better. Mm -hmm. White wines, narrower glass, tend to keep the wine in a smaller space and tend to keep it colder. That's probably better for a white wine. Uh, It also gives it its sort of its edge that the white wine needs that, you know, that little bit of bite sort of, and it, it helps it. It but, helps that. But in the end, I'm going to go back to the fact that I judge wine competitions all over the world. and The worst glasses. We the, use the well, worst glasses. It not not always the worst glasses, but they use the same glasses yeah. for all wines. Little tiny wines, right? But well, yes. some of them are good glasses, uh, okay. but still... The same glass, whether it be red, white, or dessert wine. So if that's good enough for professional wine judges at a wine competition, it's probably good enough for your house. Now, if you want to make a pretty table with lots of displays, and Rick loves to try to throw the dime in to see if he gets to take one of the glasses home. That's why I use the big glasses, yeah. Yeah. Then that's a a legitimate, you know, it's legitimate to set your table with different sizes and shapes because it looks pretty. But it's not do or die. Yeah. You know, and and I've been through through um, uh, these the glass comparisons and and there really is I, I agreed you know because of this as often as how you smell how much of it you smell because remember eighty five percent of taste is smell even after you swallow you're still actually smelling that's why it's difficult to taste next to Rick <laughs> yeah, no. yes well no I took a shower this morning uh, the the uh, and so that matters too and if you know if you want some time and you've you've got some time and I do this because it's fun and it drives my wife nuts. <laughs> just take out a few different styles of glass and, and right. taste the wines in it. Right. Um, but really, uh, there's probably two things that might be most important. One, the thin rim, rim really is a good thing. It, you, it, uh, it, it's, 
it does give it a feel. And, and, and when you pick up a glass with a Thimran, you just, you just want to lift that pinky up. Yes. You know, it just makes you feel a little more elegant. There you go. And the other is, <laughs> I'd say go with a glass shape that you like. Yeah. If it's pretty, yeah. it's, that's fun, yeah, too. It's fun, but, too. Yeah, but fair yeah. question. All right. Yep. This one comes from Ben in Woodside. Cool. He said, you guys talked about the UC Davis study on corks that's uh, going to go up to 100 years. Um, have there been studies on screw tops and how how they affect wine? And the answer is, yeah, there have been, sure, actually. lots yeah. of them. Um, I went back and looked through some of the notes that mm-hmm. I have, and we've even talked about a few of these. One of them was a 2004 study by Oregon State. Mm-hmm, um, they mm-hmm. found that consumers in blind tests could not tell the difference between wines with a cork and screw cap. Right. And that's true not only of cork and screw caps, but that's true of almost most, any difference. Most yeah. wines, most too. Most wines, yes. Yeah. Well, then yeah, there's right. that in general. But the, the point being, not, not as an insult to anyone, but that's why it doesn't matter. Right. Um, UC Davis did um, a really interesting study, but it was just Sauvignon Blanc, and it was over just a couple years. And what they found, they thought that there was a bit more freshness, quote-unquote, to the fruit. With the screw caps. Yeah, and, and yeah. the reason being because there's less oxygen that got but in. But that, that develops over time, and if you're buying wine and taking it home immediately, chances are there's you even less of a difference. Yeah. yeah. And and then my favorite, uh, so far anyways, from Chateau Margaux, and, um, they right. had been doing the study for 10 years. Yeah. 10 years. And yeah. after 10 years, they opened... They bottled some of their better, best wine in screw cap and cork, and they said it was too early to tell. You know, I have volunteered to taste those wines for them. And, I bet you have. And they just haven't – they've just never followed up on that. You know, I, I uh, gave I, them the opportunity. I don't know why. I don't know um, why. Uh, but uh, the real answer actually about about screw caps is that there really is not enough long re- long-term research done. And that's according to uh, Andrew Waterhouse, who's the UC Davis professor and wine chemist, who is running that 100-year cork study. Right. Of course, he wants to say that because that gives him a job for the next 100 well, years. Well, he's studying corks, so he's mostly looking yeah. at that. But yeah, yeah. Uh, And by the way, if anybody didn't hear, UC Davis announced that they are doing a study that's going to last 100 years looking at what the impact of, of being sealed to a cork does to a wine and how much the oxygen trans. And, affects it. And, and then, Rick, we will never know the answer to that question. Uh, unless my time machine starts to work. Because <laughs> I could get that thing in. I'm working on it. You're working no, on yeah, it. Yeah, I just got a couple yeah. screws I got to find. There I'm going down the hardware store. are screws that are loose, aren't yeah, they, Rick? Yeah, well, <laughs> could be that. All right, that's it for questions uh, for the moment. But coming up now, we've, we're speaking of time machines, we're going to our Wayback Machine for some historic history. We're going to fly those guys in my new time machine to a future episode so they can record it all at once. And that way we don't have to have keep marching keep them in and out Marching them in and out yeah. every day. That but, would yes. be helpful. But thanks, th- guys. Thanks, guys. Excellent work. All right, Paul. So what uh, historic history moment do you have? Well, I want to talk about ancient wine and the fact that it was stored not under cork and not under screw cap, but basically in clay amphora, these big clay pots for many, many years. And Galen, the... The the doctor physician to the emperors of Rome was once given the job of tasting through all the wines in the emperor's cellar. And even without a a screw cap or a cork in sight, he decided that the greatest wine in the cellar was a 125-year-old wine from Falernium. There you go. Did he give it 100 points? I don't know how many (laughs) points he gave it. That's an interesting question. But it is interesting to think that when we worry so much about the storage conditions of our wines today, there is a wine that had been stored in a clay pot underground, uh, no cork, no screw cap, and Galen thought it was the best that he'd ever tasted after 125 years. Of course, um, we don't know what the other wines tasted like. That's true. (laughs) Well, 
And, and mine is a, a, a cork uh, or a cork stopper related because, um, you know, what cork is, it's the bark of a tree. And, yes. and they, you know, for really for centuries, people have used some version of that as stoppers for liquids. Yes, but usually uh, smaller things like perfume. And, right. Yeah. Um, but they found some in ancient Egyptian tombs. Uh, they were a couple thousand years old. They found cork stoppers. Um, uh, but they really corks didn't become the main a main closure style until the late 1860 excuse me again let me try this again try 1600s this again. 1600s easy yes. for you to say yes I, apparently it isn't um, but it, it wasn't about the cork so much it was that yeah. the glass industry had developed they not only did they learn to blow glass consistently but they started using molds so right. the the size would be the same the right. opening would be the same so then they could make yeah. cork and, and the, it's interesting that the outside shape of the bottle doesn't matter to the cork it's yeah. actually the shape of the neck inside right. that right. matters to the make whole, a good seal with the cork. There is an, an argument that that was one of the things that really changed wine. Um, it allowed, Absolutely uh, did. Yeah. They could allow yep. it to age and for all kinds of fine wine. Yep. Okay. Uh, speaking about changing wine, one question at a time. Since the 1600s, Six, Rick and Paul. We've been answering questions. <laughs> that should be our motto. <laughs> answering questions since 1693. Who would know otherwise? All right. This one comes from Jan in Sacramento. We had a big birthday weekend with a few old wines, and a couple corks broke. Is there a best way to get the cork bits out when that happens? Oh, I have a wonderful story to tell about this, Rick. And the answer is no. The answer is um, yes. So a couple of different comments here. First of all, when you're pulling out a really old cork, there are some tricks that will make it easier. One of them is to use a really good corkscrew that has an open helix. The That's rule a, is you a, should a, be able to run a toothpick up inside yeah. that screw. The wider the, wider the circle is always the best thing, right? And put that screw into the cork as far as you possibly can because you want it to go all the way out the bottom of the cork and grab the whole cork. One of the reasons corks break is that the corkscrew doesn't go in all the way and it leaves part of the cork down in the bottle. So yeah, that's and long is a good point too. You don't want a short Short right. Per, right. So right. that's one tip. Number two tip is those two-pronged, what we used to call the also cork puller that sends a prong down on either side. If you've never used one of these before, the time to start is not on a 30-year-old bottle of wine. But if you're practiced with these, they do a better job of pulling out these old corks than most corkscrews. Because what happens often if the cork doesn't break is sometimes you just pull out the middle of the cork with right. the corkscrew. Right. right. And these ossos actually right. extract the cork from the outside. Yeah. So, But the last element is, okay, and I've done this, you've done this, and we're pros. You pull out the corkscrew and you look down in the bottle and what came out of the cork outcome came out of the bottle wasn't the whole cork. Right. So either there are shreds everywhere or there's a portion of the cork that's stuck in the bottle and all of this. Couple of different options. I actually, some people say, a use a coffee filter. That's my. That's always been my approach. Yeah, it, it helps to rinse the coffee filter with a little wine first to get rid of a little bit of the paper taste. I actually prefer a funnel, and I take my wife's tea strainer and pour yeah. it through a tea strainer. It doesn't take out the tiny particles, but it takes out the bigger chunks, and it never gives a little coffee filter flavor to the wine. So either one of those will do. So here's my story. We were once organizing a tour of Port wineries. And there were 12, 15 of the greatest port producers in the world. And we might point out that port's one of those wines that can age for a really long time. And one of the things these guys did on their tour was each one brought a current vintage and once they each brought an ancient bottle of port as well. What was the age range? 
between 20 and 50 years old. Cool. Yeah. So old wine. Yeah. And so one of my staff was there, and she was opening one of these older ports because the guy had called down. He was running late. He couldn't make it. Could we please open his port for him? Yes. And she pulled the cord, and it just shredded. And she looked at me, and she turned absolutely white and, you know, oh, my God, what do I do? And I said, it's okay. We're whispering now because we don't want anybody else no, to know what's going no. on. Because, you know, there are 12 other yep. port producers at this tasting. I said, behind that door over there is a kitchen. Go into the kitchen, pour, pour all of this wine into another bottle through a filter, then pour it back into the original bottle. Chances are they'll never notice. Well, she goes back there, and she's back there for a few minutes, and I think, huh, that's funny. Uh, some of the port producers are missing here. I wonder if she's got into trouble back there. So I walk back in there, and guess what I found, Rick? Everybody was doing it. Everybody yep. was doing the same thing because oh, right. they'd all broken the corks, yeah. too. As yeah. happens. And by the way, you know, <laughs> of, of, if this ever does happen to you with a wine-like port, that's one you do not have to worry about changing its uh, taste too much by pouring it through a coffee filter. Yeah. It, it's not. It's, it's going to hold pretty up. Pretty big, powerful one. Yeah, yeah. Yep. All right. Uh, our last one comes from Elaine in Hartford, Connecticut, where it's currently very cold. <laughs> um, <laughs> how much does smoke from a fireplace affect the taste of wine? Everywhere we go this time of year, there's a fire burning, including in our house. I wonder if that changes the wine. Does it affect your your, your ability, the taste of it? Sure. It affects the taste of everything. You smell it. Sure. 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 Makes it, But, you know, it makes it smell like winter. Now, if we were doing a serious blind wine tasting to determine the greatest wine in the world or the greatest wine palette in the world, we would run screaming from the room if there were smoke there because that would be a disaster. But we're sitting there in a house. Some people may be wearing perfume. There's probably food smells. I hope there are food smells coming from the kitchen. I'm hungry. It's my house. There's a cat smell. There's, there you go. And a little fire smell as well. What the heck? It's all part of life. Yeah. yeah, enjoy the wine. Yeah, enjoy the Stick wine. Stick right. your nose deeper into the glass, and inhale more deeply, and enjoy the moment. Yes, uh, that's really all you need. Yeah, wouldn't worry about it at all. All right, so that is it for another round of Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Our producer is the lovely and charming Matt Pacini. Thank you, Matt. Thanks to Capital Public Radio for the studio use and for including us on their podcast last night. Recommended thank, thank podcast. Thank you, Napa Broadcasting, for your help, too. And don't forget, Paul will be leading a pretty spectacular cruise down the West Coast, leaving San Francisco July 31st. Information available at winecruisegroup.com or on our website. And Paul will be speaking at the Vancouver International Wine Festival on uh, February 26th to March 4th, and right. I'll be there just hanging around. Come have a great time and avoid both of us easily enough. And that's information at tourismvancouver.com. And if you learned anything today, we hope it's the wine industry should listen to us more. I'm not sure they should, Rick. <laughs> oh, maybe about not being snobby. Yeah, oh, fair enough. Yeah. That one I'll agree with. Oh, okay. I'm Rick Cushman. And I'm Paul Wagner. And remember the best wines you drink are with friends or with us, especially us. 